welcome to Baptist Perspective with Jimmy Barber. Whether you're listening while driving home from work, sitting with a hot cup of coffee, or making dinner, we hope this podcast will be thought-provoking and edifying. Now, here with today's episode is Jimmy Barber. Many passages can be presented that teach the duty of sanctification of a believer. However, I would like to direct our attention at this time to the sixth chapter of the book of Romans. Obviously, we cannot give a detailed exposition of this chapter in the short space that we strive to limit our podcast. Chapter 5 closes with our justification and how it is where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Romans 5.20 Then chapter 6 opens, though originally there were no verses or chapter divisions. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Then it is presented that believers manifest their faith in obedience to the Lord in baptism with the confession that they are striving to walk in obedience to the Lord and not serve sin. Romans 6.6 Afterwards, verse 12 gives the injunction, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it and the lusts thereof. In reality, the verb construction is such that in our modern vernacular, it might read, Stop letting sin reign in your mortal body. In other words, God commands the believer to live a sanctified life or a life of holiness. The idea that God regenerates a child of grace and leaves it up to him as to whether he walks in holiness is foreign to the Scriptures. In fact, there is no example of a person in the New Testament living a life of sin after his regeneration. If there is no other place in Holy Writ where sanctification is commanded, though there are many such places, it is clear here. God commands us to live a holy life, but the Scriptures do not leave sanctification as a command that is to be done. The Scriptures go beyond and declare that grace is superior to sin effectual in the life of a Christian. Verse 14 tells us that because ye are under grace, that sin shall not have dominion over us. Yes, we are commanded to not yield our members to sin, but to yield them to God. Verse 13. In other words, our eyes are to be used to behold godly things and not allow them to observe that which is ungodly. This practice is to be followed with all of the members of our body, the mind, ears, mouth, hands, feet, and with all our other faculties. In reality, we are either a servant to righteousness or a slave to sin. Verse 16 plainly sets this forth. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants, to obey his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? 
However, because one is under grace and born again by the Holy Spirit, he is, quote, made free from sin, end of quote, and, quote, became the servants of righteousness, verse 18. Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, compounds the strength of holiness in the child of grace in verse 22. But now being made free from sin, ye become servants to God. Ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Yes, grace reigns in the life of one who has been born from above because grace is more effectual than sin. Notice again the divine injunction. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law but under grace. Romans 6.14 It did not say that sin may not have dominion over you, nor that sin ought not have dominion over you, but sin shall not have dominion over you. Emphasis mine. If this is not enough, notice again verse 22. But now being made free from sin, ye become servants to God. Ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Of this verse, the English Baptist Robert Haldane wrote the following. Having concluded his triumphal reply to the objection that his doctrine concerning justification leads to indulgence in sin, the apostle here assures those to whom he wrote of the blessed effects of becoming servants to God. In the eighth chapter, these are fully developed. But now, being made free from sin, that is, emancipated from a slate, from a state of slavery to sin, fruit unto holiness, fruit in this verse denotes conduct, and holiness its specific character or quality. When conduct or work are called fruit, their nature is not expressed, they are merely considered as the production of the man. Fruit unto holiness is conduct that is holy. And the end everlasting life, fruit unto holiness, or holy conduct, is the present result of freedom from sin and of becoming servants to God. Eternal life is the final result. Albert Barnes testified of the same when he affirmed, being made free from sin being delivered from its dominion and from bondage in the same manner as before conversion, they were free from righteousness. Romans 6.20 Ye have your fruit unto holiness. The fruit or result is holiness. This service produces holiness as the other did sin. It is implied here, though not expressly affirmed, that in this service which leads to holiness, they receive important benefits as in the service of sin they had experienced many evils. The comments of John Gill are rewarding. Fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Holiness is a fruit of freedom from the bondage of sin and of serving God. 
Holiness begun in regeneration, calling, and conversion is a fruit of the Spirit. A course of living righteously is a fruit of holiness. As a principle implanted, a gradual increase in holiness is carried on by the Spirit of God in a course of righteousness, and a course of righteousness from a principle of grace issues imperfect holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Hebrews 12:14. Here it seems to design that holiness is fruit, or that which gain and profit to persons in opposition to sin, in which there is no profit. It is not indeed profitable to God in point of merit, yet holiness as a principle of grace is profitable to the saints in point of meekness for glory and holiness, as it denotes an external course of life is useful and profitable on many accounts. Hereby God is glorified, the doctrine of Christ is adorned, religion is honored and recommended, our own credit, reputation, and peace are preserved, and our neighbor's good promoted. Regarding and the end is eternal life, Gill went on to say, as sin issues, if grace prevent not, in everlasting death, holiness issues in eternal life, not by way of merit, but a free gift. Even A.T. Robertson agreeably wrote of this verse, Freedom from sin and slavery to God bring permanent fruit that leads to sanctification. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 10 through 12, speaks about those who will perish, will not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved, will believe a lie, be damned, and live a life of pleasure in unrighteousness. Contrastingly, God tells us in verses 13 and 14 that the regenerated child of grace lives a life of sanctification because it is inclusive in salvation that is appointed to the chosen from the beginning. Note these verses. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It cannot be more clearly stated than that from the beginning we were chosen to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. In other words, we are sanctified by the Spirit through belief of the truth. Is not this what the Lord Jesus Christ prayed for, the elect? Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. Many quotes could be supplied to summarize this glorious passage regarding the various subjects contained in it. However, I will simply quote from the Matthew Henry Commentary that this refers mainly to the topic of sanctification. It is as follows. Therefore were they beloved of the Lord because God had chosen them from the beginning. 
He had loved them with an everlasting love. Concerning this election of God, we may observe, one, the eternal date of it. It is from the beginning. Not the beginning of the gospel, but the beginning of the world before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4 Then, two, the end to which they were chosen. Salvation, complete and eternal salvation from sin and misery and the full fruition of all good. Three, the means in order to obtaining this end, sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. The decree of election therefore connects the end and the means, and these must not be separated. We are not the elect of God because we were holy, but that we might be holy. Being chosen of God, we must not live as we list, but if we are chosen to salvation as the end, we must be prepared for it by sanctification as the necessary means to obtain that end, which sanctification is by the operation of the Holy Spirit as the author and by faith on our part. There must be the belief of the truth without which there can be by true sanctification, nor perseverance in grace, nor obtaining salvation. Faith and holiness must be joined together as well as holiness and happiness. Therefore our Savior prayed for Peter that his faith might not fail, Luke 22.32, and for his disciples, John 17.17, Sanctify them by thy truth, thy word is truth. This is from the Computer Bible Program Sword Searcher. Again, we see that sanctification in the life of a believer is no option. The Lord willing, we shall discuss this fuller in following podcasts, but our time is exhausted for today. Farewell. Thank you for listening to today's edition of Baptist Perspective. We archive our episodes so you can go back anytime and listen again. Do you have a question about something you've heard or just want to let us know you're listening? Visit us at baptistperspective.wordpress.com. That's baptistperspective.wordpress.com. Thanks again for listening.